Today's scripture text comes from 1 Timothy, uh, chapters 1 and chapter 3. Nathan will be preaching on this in a moment. Uh, It is printed in your bulletin. Please um, heed that as I read it uh, for us. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I thank you who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover of mercy. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons that they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, you are indeed a giving God. You have shown this to us in the giving of your own son in order that we might have life through him. Father, beyond this, you have blessed us with many things in this life and we now Return to you from what you have first given to us, these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings. We pray that you would use them for your purposes in this world, in order that your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth, in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all. And Father, as we prepare now to approach your word, we pray that you would humble us, that you would make us confident at the same time, that you would humble us, that we would know that we are sinners before a holy God, but that you would also give us confidence because you are a God who gives grace, who bestows favor and honor. So we pray that as we look into your word, you would help us with the eyes of faith to see the author and perfecter of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I think I've shared this with you before, um, but when I was growing up, I grew up in a 
a family that, that loved baseball. And um, that was just our deal. Other families are tennis families, ballet families. I don't know what you are. But um, we were a baseball family. And, you know, the, the steel cleats, the big league chew, the, you know, sweat-stained ball caps, that was just our thing. Um, played an awful lot growing up. And over all those years, I can't tell you how many times, it would be impossible to count how many times I heard this particular sage piece of advice shouted at me and others on the baseball field from coaches and teammates and parents. Um, the same advice that I am going to pass on to my son, to be sure. Um, very sound, helpful piece of advice, whether you're in the field or at bat. And it was just this. Keep your eye on the ball, <laughs> right? You know, um, no doubt that applies to other sports and those kind of things that involve hand-eye coordination. But keep your eye on the ball. You know, you'll you'll swing and you'll miss if you're not looking. Um, or if, you know, if it's really bad, you might get hit by the ball uh, if you take your eyes off of the ball. And, you know, the irony, of course, is I'm watching uh, my son play t-ball and other little children play t-ball right now is, you know, out of fear of getting hit by the ball, you know, kids instinctively close their eyes, which is also the best way to get hit by the ball. Um, but they have to learn over time. Um, anyway, um, this morning I'm, we're finishing up a very brief series on the shape of ministry in the church. Ministry in the church gets shaped under the offices of elder and deacon. We've been saying this for a few weeks now. And, and, and the reason is, is because the redemptive mission of the church is to bring healing to brokenness through the ministry of word and deed. You know, we are a young, um, newly replanted church here at Grace Community Church, and we aren't quite ready yet to go through another process of nominating, training, and electing officers, uh, men to these offices. Um, but maybe it's just a reflex, reflex uh, uh, action on my part from all those years in the baseball field, uh, hearing coaches and fans and parents scream at me, keep your eye on the ball. But that's really what I've been trying to do in this short little series is to say we need to keep our eye on the ball. This is where we are headed in, in the future of our church towards a robust ministry of word and deed, right? And men who hold offices that keep us focused on this specific shape of ministry. And see, though we're, we aren't there yet, I, I want us to avoid the trouble that comes when we do take our eye off the ball, um, because this happens often, right? And creates lopsided uh, ministry and ineffective ministry and unprepared ministry. And positively, I guess that's kind of negative, but positively, it's important that we would keep our eye on the ball because only that way can we connect with it. Right. Uh, so that together we can build a ministry that allows the life giving, transforming power of the gospel to flow into our lives, into our community and the world. And so this morning, I want us to look at these two passages that we read earlier from Paul's letter to Timothy. Um, and I want us to think together about the men who are qualified to lead us in ministry of word and deed. And I want you to see just two things out of these passages. I want you to see that men who are qualified to lead will be men of the gospel and they will be men of character. Okay, so first, let's talk about men of the gospel. The kind of leaders we need are men of the gospel. I think that a common mistake that people make when thinking about identifying qualified 
qualified leaders is that they, they first, they rush ahead to, to this list of character traits that lists like you see in First Timothy chapter 3. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. That's important. And we're certainly going to talk about that this morning. But you have to understand that real godly character, it doesn't, ju- it doesn't just appear out of thin air. Godly character is grown in the soil of the gospel. First and foremost, the leaders that Paul has in mind when he gives these instructions to Timothy is that they are going to be men of the gospel. I can describe it very, very quickly, what what I mean by men of the gospel, and then maybe flesh a little bit more of it out. What I mean by men of the gospel are men who own their brokenness, men who rest in Jesus alone for, for salvation, redemption, and rescue, and men who love Jesus above everything else in their lives. Just look at verse 13 to see in chapter 1 to see how Paul owns his own his brokenness. He writes, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. See, Paul is not the kind of guy who's waiting around for someone else to come and point out his brokenness and remind him of his failures. He so owns his failures that he's reminding everyone else of them. Right? He was a blasphemer. He was the one who showed up and persecuted those who followed, followed Jesus. The one who trampled and killed the followers of Jesus. That's his story, right? You can read it in the book of Acts. Um, he, before he was converted, what he was busy doing was trying to get rid of all of Jesus' followers. He was trying to end Christianity, right? You feel, you and I, we feel burdened by the weight of our failures, right? Your brokenness, like guilt is pressing down upon you. Um, And the shame of your moral compromises in life often makes you think, there's no way that I could be forgiven. There's no way that I could change. Look at Paul, because he wants you to look at him. He says in verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Right. Paul is saying, look at me. (laughs) If Jesus can save me and change me, he can save you. It doesn't get worse than than killing Christians and trying to end the church. Okay, but let's go a step further. A lot of you have heard (laughs) heard the same thing as I've heard before. And it's this is the thing. That makes me cringe whenever I little hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I hear that someone is going to give their testimony. Um, because so often what we hear in testimony, some of them are done well, but so often what we hear is I used to be really bad and then I came to Jesus and now I'm really good. And maybe at first glance, it seems like that's what Paul is doing here. But it's most definitely not. And this is really important. Paul gives you all that stuff about his past, right? But you have to pay attention to the verb tenses in this passage. I mean, verse 15 is in the past tense, but not verse 16 that comes right after it, where he says this, the saying is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Not I was the foremost, but I am the foremost. This is the Apostle Paul. He had this huge conversion experience, right? He wrote more books in your New Testament than any other author. 
right? He planted churches all over the place. He's now this older man at the end of his life mentoring this, this young pastor, Timothy. And he says to Timothy, the more I grow up, the more I grow down. Right. Growing in maturity as a follower of Jesus means growing in an appreciation of how sinful you are. Present tense. Men of the gospel are men who can own their brokenness. Men who can say men who do say sorry regularly and often. Men who instead of blaming others or their circumstances or getting defensive can say whatever charges you bring against me, I can promise you I'm way worse than that. Because see, here's the thing. Only when you own your failure and your brokenness do you begin to understand the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus. See, we all know this. Men, men are notorious um, for not asking for help in the hardware store. Um, and they never want to pull over and ask for directions, right? Um, I mean, we want to have all the answers. We want to be able to fix everything. And it's when you are face-to-face with your brokenness, that you begin to realize that there's one thing you can't fix. It's you. It's your heart. You don't have an answer for that problem. I'm not going to reread verses 13 through 16 in chapter 1, but it is filled with words like mercy, grace, unlimited patience, saving sinners. Here's what men of the gospel come to understand. That the answer to your deepest problem has to come from outside of yourself. See, we're individualistic, postmodern Americans, and we love stories about people pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and that kind of stuff. In this culture, we hear things all the time, like you have to look deep inside yourself and you'll find the answer. Men of the gospel are very, very different because the gospel is very, very different. It says, look inside yourself and you will find the problem. And the deeper you go, the darker it will get. To be a man of the gospel, you have to look away from yourself. You have to look outside of yourself to Jesus. I mean, it's very important that that you all hear this clearly. Qualified leaders, men of the gospel, are men who know how to fall before Jesus and cry out for mercy. They know what it is to find rest Not in themselves, but outside of themselves. Not in their own accomplishments or success or achievements. But they rest in the accomplishments, the success, and the achievements of Jesus in their place. I mean, we just said that men of the gospel are men who own their brokenness and own their sin. And they face the truth about themselves. But how do you do that? I, I, I mean, how do you find the freedom... To become that vulnerable and that transparent? How do you find the freedom to face the hard truth of reality and not try to dismiss it with defensiveness or blaming or whatever you do? You find that freedom when you rest in Jesus who went to the cross and was beaten beyond recognition and crucified to deal with the brokenness, guilt, and shame that you can never fix on your own. And see, men who own their brokenness And men who look outside of themselves to Jesus for grace and mercy. Do you know what this produces? It produces men who deeply love Jesus above everything else. You know, when you're reading through these verses in chapter 1 and hearing about Paul talk about his past and his present and all this kind of stuff. 
You get to verse 17 and it just kind of seems to jump out of nowhere. It's like the, the chain of thought is broken for the Apostle Paul. All of a sudden, Paul just breaks his train of thought to say, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, where did that come from? All of a sudden, Paul just bursts into song. In the, in the middle of his thinking about this, you see, as he talks about his brokenness and the amazing grace of God, he cannot help it. He's moved to sing. He's moved to praise. He's moved to joy. The essence of God's glory is found in his grace. That's why Paul writes, after recounting all this stuff, he writes, To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Men of the gospel, broken and rescued by grace, know this, and therefore come to love Jesus above everything else. What kind of men are going to love you well? Right. What kind of men are going to lead you rightly and protect you and serve you rightly? Men who have come to love Jesus more than you, more than your approval of them, more than their careers, more than their hobbies, even more than their families. Men who have been brought low by their sin and lifted up by the grace of Jesus. Now, I don't know. I really don't know anything about construction, but there, there's this house on Houston Levy Road that's been in the process of being built forever, it seems like. And um, and early on, I found myself driving past this house regularly, this lot, where I knew this house was going to be built. And um, I caught myself thinking, you know, I, I wonder, it looks like they're clearing a pretty big piece of land. I wonder how big this house is going to be, you know, and maybe what will it look like? Will it be one story, two story? Will it be brick? Will it have siding? garage, carport, I don't know, um, caught myself thinking about that, wondering what it's going to look like. Uh, but the more impatient I grew, bec- uh, because they were taking so long, um, the more I realized that the guy building the house was probably not thinking about the same things as I was thinking about. Because he, it was too early in the process. All of those things that I was thinking about, they would come in their own time. But right now, what was important was getting the foundation right. Right, making sure it was level and the earth was packed and that huge slab of concrete, you know, in place. Because look, if the foundation isn't done right, brick or siding, carport or garage or one story, two stories, it really doesn't matter. Because that house is going to eventually crumble under its own weight if the foundation's not in place. See, as you keep your eye on the ball, remember this qualified leaders, they are first men of the gospel. If you try and add godly character without the foundation of the gospel firmly in place, it is going to crumble and just be an absolute mess. Everything depends on the foundation. The character that God calls leaders to, it only makes sense in light of the gospel. See, the character that the Bible describes is really what it looks like for the gospel to be fleshed out and to be lived out in our, la- in our lives in real concrete ways. There is no gospel character without gospel foundation. Let me also say this before we move on. This is important. No leader is without flaws. I mean, no leader is perfect, and every leader is going to fail. Your leaders are, after all, are, are at the end of the day, they're going to be human just like you. And if this gospel foundation isn't in place in your life, 
you'll crumble and crash under the weight of your own failures because you'll have nowhere to take your brokenness and heal you in the midst of it. Let's move on to talk about the second point here, the men of character. Those qualified to lead the church in a ministry of word and deed, they have to be men of character. And I do want you to understand this. The grace of Jesus, it doesn't just stop at rescuing us from the punishment that we deserve. It definitely does that. But God's grace also transforms because character flows out of identity, right, of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul mentions these identifiable character traits of overseers or elders. And then in verse, verses 8 through 13, he's talking about the identifiable character traits of men who would serve as deacons, right? Before we take a brief look at this, I, I want you to be aware of two things. Okay, first, Paul is saying that the character of these leaders, it should be evident in the community. All right, when the gospel takes root in a man's life, it's obvious to the community. Right, it's identifiable, Paul is saying. You can see it. That's why Paul gave Timothy a list of things he could look for in these men. Men of the gospel are changed from the inside out. If you can't see with your own two eyes the change in character, something is wrong foundationally. These are not men of the gospel first. And second, some people get weird about this list of character traits, okay? And I don't know why, because you look at this list, and it's not a list of extraordinary character, extraordinary character, right? Self-control, not violent or quarrelsome, not a drunkard, not greedy, a good steward of money and family. These lists aren't descriptions of super-Christians, they're descriptions of normal, ordinary Christians. I mean, seriously, Paul isn't saying this is what a super Christian looks like. Elect these men to office. Right? He's mainly giving you a list of observable character traits. And he's saying this is what it looks like when the gospel gets a hold of someone. This is what it looks like. You can see it. It's real. It affects every area of life. Right? Now, here's what I want to do. Because the... The character list for elder and deacon, they're very similar. We're going to consider them together uh, just mainly because of time. And I want to divide the list like this. What men of character are and what men of character aren't. Okay, so first, what men of character are. In verse 2 and 12, the husband of but one wife. Literally, these verses are saying that the man of character is a one-woman man. I mean, we live in a sexually charged culture. We live in a culture obsessed with sex and sexuality. And apparently, that's not really new. Um, that's been around for a while. But see, Paul is saying that when the gospel gets a hold of you, it changes you. The gospel creates faithful men. Right? Remember, godly character is the gospel lived out. When you see the faithfulness of Jesus to his bride, the church, the faithfulness that took him to the cross to be beaten and to die for you, it's got to change you. It's got to affect you. When that truth gets a hold of you deep down in the core of who you are, it creates men who practice faithfulness to their wives. Moving along, verse 2, 6, verse 11, sober-minded, self-controlled, faithful in all things. Paul is saying that the gospel creates well-balanced, even-tempered men. 
I think is one way to put it. Men who are faithful and can be counted on because they aren't shifting and impulsive. He's talking about men who aren't pulled and tossed to and fro by their emotions, right? Men who are neither arrogant and puffed up and overconfident when things are going well or wallowing in the depths of despair, anger, and bitterness when things aren't going well and when they're criticized. See, when it gets into your heart that you are so wicked that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die for you, but you are also so loved that he willingly died for you, it creates balance in your life. Self-control, sober-mindedness, confident humility. We've got to pick up a little more speed here. Verse 2, he's hospitable. The gospel is the story. It's the great story. Of God bringing strangers in. Of making sons and daughters out of orphans. And when that truth settles in your heart, it begins to change you. It will move you out towards others. right? It will create within you a love for the lost, a love for the broken, a love for the outcast. And you will work to bring them in. Hospitable. Verse 4 and 12, men of character are family men. And the relationships that are most fundamental... And closest to him, you can see the gospel work in the way he loves, manages, disciplines, and cares for his family. See, you know men, and I know men, who are workaholics, who are obsessed with their hobbies or or with their own achievements. The gospel comes in and it reshuffles all of your priorities and gives higher priority to the most fundamental relationships in your life, in the family, and it can be seen. Verse 2, 7, 8, 11, above reproach, respectable, well thought of by outsiders. You know, I don't think Paul is saying that men of character are men without sin. Um, That would contradict everything that Paul just said about himself. I'm the foremost sinner. But Paul is saying that the man of character is so thoroughly changed by the gospel that people inside and outside the church recognize it and can see it. I mean, it's hard to find things that you can point a finger at to and blame because he isn't a hypocrite. He's the same here as he is at work and at the country club and wherever he goes. He's the same man, a man of integrity. Okay, let's look at some things that describe what a man of character isn't. Verse 3 and 8, he isn't a drunkard or addicted to much wine. See, he's a man who knows how to enjoy God's good gifts to his creation without becoming enslaved to it. He isn't characterized by drunkenness. We said this a little differently in the first point. But the good news of the gospel frees you to embrace reality and not try to run from it and escape reality in anything. Verse 3 and 11, he's not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. I say more than this, but look, the man of character, he isn't a troublemaker. Okay? You and I know men who are constantly looking for a fight and looking for an argument to get into. The gospel so thoroughly changes a man that he doesn't fight out of his insecurity or, or of his need to feel superior to others, which is kind of the same thing. But having been forgiven, having been reconciled to God, the man of character has been set free to show grace and patience and seek peace. Verse 3 and 8. He's not a lover of money, not greedy for dishonest gain. So much that we could say here, like with all the others. But listen, the gospel makes a difference in how we treat others. It makes a difference in our priorities and how we handle criticism and praise. It makes a difference in in how we handle, handle ourselves sexually. 
And it makes a big difference in how we use our money. You know, money isn't bad. It's just money, right? The Bible never treats money as evil. But in the same book, Paul writes in just a couple of chapters, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in this world. The love of it, the slavery to it, right, will work destruction in your life and those around you. Look, the story of the gospel is the story of Jesus giving up his riches and becoming poor for you. It's a story of the amazing generosity of God to shower us with his grace in Jesus. And that changes you. And it should be making you and me more and more generous, better and better stewards of, of the things God has given us. Now, listen, we would need several weeks to look at these verses in detail. I'm just kind of scratching the surface, not mentioning everything in these verses. But the main thing I want to impress upon you is this. The qualified leaders, they are men of the gospel, and you can see it in their lives. The gospel gets lived out in real practical ways. You can see it in the character of those who are qualified to lead in the church. When I was a senior in high school, my dad and I, we got in the car and we, I think it was a senior, maybe it was a junior, drove off to look at some different colleges and, and universities. And we were driving somewhere in Arkansas, out in the middle of nowhere. There, and there's a lot of nowhere in Arkansas. Um, but, you know, we're driving down the interstate and the car starts acting funny, right? It starts spurting a little bit and, and then it really started to jerk more and more. And so we... Eventually, we pulled over to the shoulder and we stopped on this interstate, interstate, off the side of the interstate. And right when we did that, the car just completely shut off, died, and we couldn't get it cranked again. Now, my, my, we're baseball people. We're not car people, okay? We know nothing about cars. Um, my dad doesn't know it, uh, anything about cars, and it certainly wasn't passed down to me. Uh, but we did the appropriate thing on the side of the road, right? We propped the hood and... Uh, Looked under it and, you know, we jiggled some wires around and stuff like that. Make it look like we knew what we were doing. And, you know, hopefully maybe we get lucky and something works or whatever, but nothing worked. And so we got out of the car and we walked uh, several miles to the next exit into the gas station. And we get there. We told the guy at the gas station what happened. And um, he asked us to describe it. And so we described what the car was doing, pulled it over. Hey, we jiggled wires. It didn't work. Surprise. Um, but um, his question back to us after he heard the description of what the car was doing was it was just so embarrassing. Um, he asked us, are you sure you didn't run out of gas? Because it kind of sounds like you might have run out of gas. And um, we both stood there in silence. And we're just like, you know. We might have run out of gas. Um, do you have a gas can? Um, sure enough, we ran out of gas. Um, you know, one thing, I guess you could use a car for a lot of things that doesn't have gas in it. I don't know. But the one thing you can't do with a car that has no gas is drive it, right? Without gas, it's just a heavy piece of metal with seats in it, you know? Look, character without the gospel, it's useless, I mean, the gospel is the fuel that brings character to life. This list of character traits in chapter 3, what a man of character is and isn't, don't try to be this without first being a man of the gospel. It would be like sitting in a car without gasoline. 
You won't you won't be moved to real and lasting change. Your failures won't send you back to the cross to rest in Jesus and continually move you to repentance in your life. Real men of character, they are grown in the soil of the gospel. These are the men who are qualified to love you and to lead you and to serve you and to protect you, to lead the church forward in a ministry of word and deed. So my encouragement to you is to keep your eye on the ball. This is where we're going. This is what we're looking for. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we are humbled by your word. Um, because we see in, in men like the Apostle Paul, we see how 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 deeply and intimately he knows you and is confident of your grace at work in his life. So much so that he can own all of his brokenness. That before waiting for others to point it out, he gladly reminds them of his brokenness so that he can be moved to praise you again and again for your glorious and wonderful grace to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would also set us free in your gospel. That we would be men like that. That we would face reality and not try to dismiss it. That we would own our brokenness instead of getting defensive about it. And that we would find our deep rest in Jesus. And that you would move us out of that to love him more than anything else in our lives. And Father, we pray that the gospel would not just be some kind of abstract theory to us or information that's tucked in our heads, but it, that it would seep down into the core of our being, into our hearts, and that it would change everything about us, that it would change how we deal with family, how we deal with money, how we deal with sexuality, that it would change absolutely everything about us. Father, we pray that you would do this for our good. We pray that you would raise up men like this, men of the gospel and men of character to lead us. We pray that you would do it for our good, but that you would chiefly and most importantly do it for your glory. Because you are the king, immortal and invisible. To whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.